Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 22nd, 2022. We are or have been increasingly talking about China on this show, the China question, or maybe it's the America question, the issue of interpretation of China, or maybe the interpretation of America. Lots of interesting conversations, one with the prize-winning uh, Oxford University historian, Henrietta Harrison, who has an interesting new book out, The Perils of Interpreting, a book about the failure of King China, and the British Empire to interpret, to make sense of what the other one was saying over the last 200 years. Doesn't seem as if much has changed. Um, we did a show with May Nye, Columbia University prize-winning historian on her new book, The China Question uh, about racism and attitudes towards Chinese people in America which is, again, another issue which doesn't seem to have gone away. Meanwhile, younger scholars and journalists seem to be taking an increasingly hard line, a very troubling, I think, in my view, at least, hard line on China. We had the Anglo-American um, analyst, Andrew Small, on the show, as a new book out, New Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West. Seems that Small, who seemed at least... A in our conversation, to be quite reasonable, is taking for granted a second Cold War. Meanwhile, other younger scholars have even gone further. Isaac Stonefish, very troubling young man, uh, was on the show recently. He has a new book out, America Second, How American Elites Are Making China Stronger. There's a degree of Cold War hysteria, in my view at least, about Isaac Stone Fisher's book and work. Maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. We need to come to our senses. We need to make sense of what's happening. And who better to talk to than my guest today, one of America's leading, if not the leading, uh, I don't know whether we'd call him a writer or a thinker or a journalist or a scholar, is all those things. Orville Shell, uh, when you go to his website, um, his byline is that he has been reporting on China since 1970. That's 52 years. And Orville is talking to us from his home in Berkeley, California today. 52 years, Orville. That's a long time to be reporting on China. Well, actually, it's, it's even, even longer than that, but let's not go there. How'd you get into it in the first place? You're a, a graduate of one of America's uh, top uh, prep schools, uh, Pomfret. You weren't probably typical in in in, in becoming a a, a, a China man, uh, learning the language and, and living there and writing about it. How did it all come about? Well, I think like many things that uh, throw the switch and send you off down one line rather than another in life. Um, for me, it was an accident. Um, I was at Harvard as an undergraduate and wanted to take a course with my sister. And the only one we could find that didn't fit both our schedules was this legendary course taught by John uh, King Fairbank and Edmund Reischauer on China and Japan. And by the time I got to the end of it, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was, um, well, it was, uh, I got stuck. 
And then I went out to uh, uh, Asia, to Taiwan, couldn't go to China at that point. This was in the 1960s to study Chinese and then came back to Harvard and just kept going. And the rest, as you suggest, is, is history. You now are in charge of the Center on US-China Relations. You've been through many of these cycles in terms of American-Chinese relations, um, Orville. Are you particularly concerned about the current one? Is it, is it something unusual or is it just one more cycle of mutual suspicion and hysteria? Well, you know, I think what's so interesting about where we find ourselves now was that uh, we've essentially returned to the place where, at least for me, the whole odyssey with China began. And when I first went out to study Chinese in Taiwan, there was no possibility of going to China. And there was great hostility. The Cold War was really had put the US-China relationship into the deep freeze. And I remember I used to uh, listen to radio broadcasts illegally at that point in Taiwan, coming in from the mainland and, and wishing I could get there and see what Mao was up to, because it was clearly a revolution of tectonic proportions. But uh, what's so odd now is that we have, after a whole period of many decades and uh, you know, 11 presidential administrations in the United States, a uh, period of engagement, where after the Kissinger-Nixon trip in 1972, the two countries actually did begin to, begin to come together again. And it was, I think, a, a, a great, uh, a great uh, credit to American diplomacy that rather than go to war, we found an alternative strategy, which is bit by bit, we thought we'd bend the metal of Leninism and, and we'd converge, not completely to be sure, but make China more soluble in the world outside. And then uh, we confronted um, uh, Xi Jinping, who's the present uh, party general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, who in many ways is a throwback uh, to the Mao era. When I first went to China in 1975, reporting for the New Yorker. Um, and so I feel like I've arrived back where I began, uh, back in a world of adversity, hostility, decoupling, division, where it's in fact very, very difficult for people to go to China any longer, and where relationships are atrophying, uh, our friends, friendships, are collegiate relationships, uh, journalists can have a very difficult time reporting there. So it's an odd return to the beginning. And it raises the question, which I'm sure is on your mind, uh, how did it happen? Why did it happen? Mm, and I want to get to your novel. Your, your latest book is My Old Home, a wonderful novel of exile about China. But I wonder if one thing has changed, although the, the, your novel is about Mao and the return to the past or the past returning to us. Um, but China, you, you've mentioned Xi Jinping, of course, we've done a number of shows on him. One book, one recent book by a couple of German journalists suggests he's the most powerful man in the world. Certainly the one thing that's changed surely over the last 50 or 60 years is China is infinitely more powerful. And whilst there are comparisons between Xi Jinping and Chairman Mao, I'm not sure whether they're more or less powerful within China, but certainly in a global context, Xi Jinping, carries a much more powerful stick, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And I think, you know, uh, the reason why I wrote a novel was because I felt that it was 
extremely difficult to get at some of the things that had to be factored into the China equation to really understand it if you just wrote nonfiction, which I had been doing. And in the, the book I wrote before was called Wealth and Power. And indeed, I think over the and last... that was from uh, 2013, you wrote it with John Delury. Yes. And I think the thing that we sort of discovered in writing that uh, uh, bit of history was that this is an incredibly powerful urge that had been sort of pushing China forward since the collapse of the last dynasty in 1911. And, uh, you know, th 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 this was something that having felt that they had been... Um, occupied by Japan, they'd been semi-colonialized by Britain, France, and the European powers. They'd been sort of humiliated, condescended to. You remember when China was considered the sick man of Asia. But the remedy, of course, was wealth and power. And I think that's very much in the playbook of Xi Jinping. But it raises the question of what is this sort of powerful urge uh, for China to re, uh, uh, reju rejuvenate its greatness, uh, the greatness that it, it, it once supposed it had and did in many ways during the dynastic period. So it's a very complicated set of psychological dynamics that are pushing this country forward and I think making it so in, in many ways intractable and difficult uh, to become digestible for the outside world such as it is. And that's why I wrote fiction, because I think to understand the personality of leaders, to understand, you know, what it felt like to be Chinese in the 20th century and how that sort of was a driving impulse is extremely important if you want to make sense out of what's happened now. I like your use of the word, Orville, digestible. Uh, it's, a, it's a delectably digestible to extend the culinary metaphor novel, My Old Home. But what do you want people to digest? I, I know it's a novel and novels, it's your first novel, uh, but so there's a, a, a fictional quality to it. It's, it's, if you wanted to do write nonfiction, you would have written another book like um, Wealth and Power. What are you trying to say in My Old Home, a novel about China and American-Chinese relations that you might have struggled to say in a, a book like Wealth and Power? I think it's very difficult to understand what it is that divides East from West, China from the United States and other, uh, other countries why China is the way it is now, if you don't look at things like literature, religion, music, art, in other words, those other impulses that, that uh, we know are, are, are uh, driving forces for, for, for human beings, uh, the Chinese Communist Party tends to put them to the side. Everything is politics, everything's economics. I mean, it's sort of Marxist, you know, reductionism. So I, I uh, in writing this novel, My Old Home, which by the way, is the name of a very famous, wonderful, wonderful short story by the 20th century writer, Lu Xun, was to, um, to follow a, a, a classical musician who studied in the West, went back home, endured the revolution, suffered in the revolution and his son. And to try to sort of counterpose the things that really do divide East and West, like, I mean, remember 
Chinese communism is completely anti-religious. It's completely anti-individual. And, you know, let's say, uh, you know, all music really, but certainly classical music is usually a meditation of an individual. Uh, it, the individual matters in Western culture, but in Maoist culture, Marxist culture, it is supposed to be the corpus of society, the common good that matters. So these things are all, you know, colliding with each other. And I felt the best way to sort of counterpose the values and, and, and the things which animate the West and those which in many ways animated Mao's revolution uh, against each other in characters and narrative rather than uh, just to, to explicate it by way of nonfiction. And so that's what I set out to do is the fate of a person, a family, that is both Western and Eastern, cares about things like religion, the self, self-expression, and all of these, these other things which we take as matters of just a course, and put those like a, a piece of litmus paper in the acid bath of the Chinese revolution and look at what happened to them. Well, it's a tragedy, of course, because they're totally uh, contradictory and insoluble. It's a tragedy, but it's also a great victory. You use this word communism, Orville. You sound in a way like a Cold War. Is that a useful word to describe the China of Xi Jinping? It's a society, a capitalist society of radical innovation, of technology, of inequality, of capitalism. Um, might we use Leninism, rather, as a, a, a focus on power? And are you suggesting that the, the men who rule China now, the Xi Jinpings of the world, I mean, there's only one Xi Jinping, of course, are they lacking any kind of human quality? Do they not listen to music? Do they not fall in love? Do they not read? Well, this is par partially why I rambled off into fiction, because these are the questions I had from the very first time I began studying China. And when I first got to China, uh, in 1975, Mao was still alive and I worked in the factory and I worked on an agricultural model uh, brigade. Uh, and I really wondered in this revolution, which Mao was still uh, riding herd on, what was the role? Did people fall in love? How did they fall in love? Because in actuality, love was considered by the party to be really insubordinate. You were supposed to love the people. You were supposed to serve the people, not serve yourself, not fall in love. Uh, and I, I really wanted to understand what happened to these very human impulses in a society and a revolution which didn't esteem all of the virtues of individualism, of a man's relation to their God, their individual relationship, their relation to poetry, literature, music, all of these things were considered an abomination by Mao. Uh, but well, but uh, Orville, Xi Jinping's life is a complicated one. His father, his relationship to the state, yes. even his marriage. Um, are you suggesting that he's missing that human quality or is it just convenient for him to gloss over it in public? I, I think this is something of a mystery. Uh, you know, what is the interior life of Xi Jinping? We really don't know. And, and you I, know, as I mean, you can guess, you can speculate, and that's what a novelist does. Yes, I wasn't writing so much about him as the- No, period. I understand, but you're writing about a world that we're trying to understand. I think that, that 
the reason why I wanted to do fiction was because this lay for me at the heart of the matter of understanding the Chinese communist, which did accomplish many things. Uh, now Mao, of course, had many girlfriends and he had many wives and he arrogated a certain, uh, uh, you know, sort of droit de seigneur for himself, but he didn't for others. And so the question was in my mind when I, there is, can a revolution succeed that doesn't acknowledge and embrace certain sort of essentially human instincts? And I think the answer is it's very difficult and it, it, it creates a tremendously uh, difficult life for the people who have to be in it, particularly for people who are hated, uh, who are wealthy, who are, uh, you know, not just simple people trying to make a living and get along, but people who indulge in the arts, who indulge in uh, all of the things which culture, uh, and traditionally in China, is elevated to the highest status, to the highest sort of uh, uh, level of human existence. So that's what I wanted to kind of figure out. And uh, now Xi Jinping has a latter-day Maoist blush about him. He's not completely the same. Um, you know, what's his relation towards these things? Uh, really doesn't let on. Uh, I've been on two trips where I got to watch him, one with Biden when they were vice presidents. And then I went, I went again China with Donald Trump when he went to visit Xi Jinping. And, you know, Xi Jinping does not give away much. He doesn't smile. He doesn't hand. Why, why would he smile? Why, why would he want to give away anything when he's talking, especially to Donald Trump or even Joe Biden? Well, I mean, in, in, within, of course, you had a complete contradiction. You have Joe Biden, the kind of Hubert Humphrey-like, glad-handing, back-slapping, smiling, you know, sit down and, and be, be friends kind of guy. But with Xi Jinping, you had someone who rarely suggested what he was thinking or feeling so far as he spoke, rarely uh, evinced much sort of emotional response to anything. In other words, he is an extremely difficult to read. And thus we end up just reading his four volume thing on the governance of China, but we really don't know what his relationship is. His daughter who went to Harvard, does, is he religious? Is he sentimental? Does he like music? These things are, are are not on the table and really have a very difficult time reading this man, unlike Emmanuel, you know, Macron or, 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 or even well, Macron's Putin. been on this show, but well, I, I, I still have a hard time reading. I'm still it. not convinced that firstly, sometimes we read these people like Trump and it's not very edifying. Shouldn't we, shouldn't, shouldn't Xi, if he's listening to this, if he has time, wouldn't he take that as a compliment? Why would he want to give anything away? Isn't the point of statesmen, diplomats, not to give anything away? It is, but there is a whole other dimension which begs this question, and that is this, that China has been reared in a narrative for the last hundred years of degradation, humiliation, persecution, colonial imperialization this is narrative and this is xi jinping's narrative now it was not and it's, some, and it's not a completely untruthful narrative is that over that's right it is not one would have to say that deng xiaoping for instance did not subscribe to this narrative which leads to nationalism and 
chest pounding and 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 bring around the the world and bullying other nations nor did hu yaobang nor did zhao ziyang and actually even Jiang Zemin, the general secretary, uh, before two before she uh, did not either. So in this sense, she is more like Mao than many of the us which we've had in the interregnum uh, between Mao and she. And you have to ask yourself, uh, how did he become that way? Why is he that way? Actually, in China's national interest within the globalized world, in which Xi Jinping. And China must live and they must accommodate in some way if they're going to be successful. And yet he seems to be more and more, just as he's aloof as a person, more and more it's economic autarky and independence and returning to exactly the mode of uh, Mao Zedong, which he had an expression of tzili, which means uh, self um, uh, self independence, uh, uh, autonomy, economically speaking. He didn't want to mix with the world, but now he's mixed with the world, and yet Xi Jinping now is re-emphasizing uh, China's own independence and autonomy and from the world, the very world that we just spent many decades merging. So it's, it's, an, it's an anomalous situation, a mysterious, and you have to ask yourself, why is he doing it? Yeah, it's a situation that Sounds a little bit like a novel, complicated. Uh, Orville, there was an interesting piece by Joe Nye recently in which he was talking about the evolution of America's China strategy. And as so often you were quoted, um, uh, he says, um, he quotes you on, on suggesting that it's patronizing to assume that Chinese citizens will, will uh, prove content to gain wealth and power alone and that they'll be satisfied with Xi's achievements. It seems to me... That is the great question of the 21st century. Yes. Of, of how the people of China will respond to Xi's uh, offer of swapping economic um, prosperity for surveillance and an absence of political freedom. Uh, so, so a couple of questions on that. Firstly, do you think there's some truth to that? And secondly, what's your sense of what's happening in China? You, you probably have as much connection with as many people in China as anyone. What's actually going on there right now outside the power hierarchies, outside the Leninist party? I think that uh, Xi's policies, which are as, as in certain ways a throwback to the earlier Maoist era, uh, are making it very difficult for China's elites, national people, educated people, people in arts and culture, people in the sciences, because they very much had grown accustomed to living on both sides of the divide, in China and outside of China, of being cosmopolitan people, comfortable in the world, not just, and I don't think she is very comfortable in the world. He's most comfortable at home. And so to, for them to see their country sort of become more isolated and autarchic, autarchic and independent and decoupled, I think is very, very disturbing. Now, other group of people in China, you know, people who are just laborers, they're, they're peasants working in the countryside, you know, people who are not educated don't depend on being in the cosmopolitan world. I think that they find it less onerous and less disturbing. 
but uh, you know, professional educated people do really make a difference in this new modern world where science, technology, and and uh, you know, things that this class can do and represent really matter. So that's that's the question: if, Can she throw China back into this earlier space? where it's much more disconnected from the world as it was when I first went to Taiwan and couldn't go there. No one could go there, except maybe occasional European. Does that work in this new world? I think it doesn't. And uh, I think Xi Jinping is, is not reading his country's own national as well as he might. And he's putting a tremendous amount of accomplishment. I mean, when you think of what China has attained over the last few decades. It's a staggering success story. So why is he putting it at jeopardy by alienating? I mean, who attacks Canada, Sweden, Australia, India? Why alienate these people? These were the original non-aligned countries that supported China first. What's going on here? Is this chip on his shoulder that's attacking the Philippines, that, that's doing wolf warrior diplomacy on South Korea. Uh, I, it make a lot of sense in terms of national interest. It only makes sense in terms of some deeper understanding of what Xi's own pathologies are, sense of place in the world. If he picked up your book, Orville, you, I know it's, it's probably not going to get translated into Chinese, but I'm sure he could get his own translator. What would you like him to learn from this book, My Old Home? What, what wisdom do you think he could learn from reading your book? I think human beings live not by bread alone and that they cannot survive on a diet of ideology and politics. They need to be allowed to be freer. They have other needs, uh, you know, whether it's culture, spirit, spiritual uh, affiliation. Uh, they need to be able to fall in love freely, uh, whatever the gender, whatever, you know, all of the the, the various things that are now thrust upon the world. And they, they, that, that there is a fundamental drive towards freedom, that you, 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 you suffocate peril of a society's creativity, happiness, and ability to endure and uh, be, be strong. I think he... Music plays an important part of a novel and all the great novels of course or certainly great 19th 20th century realist novels contain a degree of musicality and uh, writing about music why did you make music so central to the novel well i i love music uh and i uh, I, I suppose my favorite composer is bach now what's bach all about uh it struck me that bach was the absolute antithesis of Chairman Mao. I mean, Bach is all about coming to terms with your mortality, coming to terms with your, your, your creator, uh, you know, coming to terms with being a human being somehow. Uh, in other words, it's the struggle of life. And all, you know, all of his cantatas deal with that very question. Um, what's Mao about? Mao externalizing all problems. They're all outside. They're all things that a revolution can solve through class struggle, through wiping out the landlords, intellectuals, wiping out the people you don't like. Um, so I felt that at the heart of my effort 
use music in this novel as a, um, a, a, a pathway to understanding some new aspect about China um, was, was walking somewhere between Johann Sebastian Bach and, and Mao Zedong because they, they, for me, represent the, the, the two polar opposites of, of the way human beings can be in the world. China had tilted slightly to one side during the Maoist revolution. That you know, all culture had to do with the revolution. It, you couldn't fixate in your own human problems, family problems, religious problems. Uh, it, this they were considered selfish, irrelevant, and self. So uh, I, I I felt that since we were drifting back in this direction, um, a novel might be the best way to look at what the dividing line was between what China was and wasn't under Mao and, 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 and in a less complete way, an absolute way. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison of, of Mao and Xi with, with Bach. I mean, they're all profoundly ambitious, all creative, all leaving us something. Are there politicians for you who, uh, whom somehow ca capture Bath's spirit? Um, yes, you Jefferson, know, uh, yo, definitely. I mean, there, there are many, many, many incredible leaders who were either deeply religious, deep culture, whether Greco-Roman culture and the Greek tragedies, who, you know, uh, and it's the rare person. Uh, you alluded earlier to whether this was more of, of a Leninist proposition than a communist proposition. And I absolutely agree with you. I think what shifted is not Marx. There are little hints of equality that he's concerned about. But what he really is concerned about is Leninism. And that's all about the hostile outside world trying to exploit and overturn China. It's all about how you build a strong, strong party, an authoritarian system, a one-party state. And that's what Xi Jinping is, is fixated on. And so anything that, even things like Alibaba and Jack Ma, who's a, a, a friend of mine, uh, I know him well, he's a very decent, honorable person. No intention of overthrowing the Chinese Communist Party, but simply because of his wealth, he was an insane recipient power turned against the party and thus he had to be taken down and he was. So not only have they taken down entrepreneurs, which they allowed for a while, taken down religious figures, they've taken down cultural figures. They don't want anybody who has standing to challenge the suzerainty, the authority of the one party state. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Lenin and power course, in Lenin in Zurich, Solzhenitsyn's book on Lenin, he talks about Lenin's decision to give up chess. <laughs> I'm guessing for you, in, because it interfered with his focus on the revolution and power, I'm guessing for you that that's a, a, a perfect capturing of, of, what, of the mistakes of the inhumanity of Xi, of his unwillingness to acknowledge the complexity of the human condition, just as Lenin failed to understand that. And of course, he ultimately constructed the Bolshevik state on which the principles uh, you know, Mao in many ways copy and pasted it. 
Yes, and I think, you know, what you're sort of implying and what you just said is that, you know, the Leninist state depends on control, control from the top. The democracy uh, in its better form depends on letting people make their own decisions and coming to some common agreement about what the, the common good is and, and, and the common understanding of sort of social responsibilities. But Leninism has none of that. Everything emphasizes discipline and what Lenin called democratic centralism, namely that when the top decides, everybody has to fall in line on down, on down the hierarchy. And so that's a very different uh, different sort of notion of how human beings should organize themselves, interact with each other. And so Leninism and Maoism, uh, as I experienced it, really cannot even allow a husband and wife to have an alternative loyalty uh, because it is threatening to the control of the state and the absolute power of the state. So all of these things that I was writing about in my old home, my novel, uh, whether it's music, whether it's religion, whether it's love, whether it's loyalty to friends, all of these things were amputated in a very grievous way because they were threats to the, to the uh, you know, to, to the party's ability to control. Is this just, a, in your view at least, Orville, a, a return to Hannah Arendt's version of totalitarianism? Well, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? What to call it? And all of these old terms, totalitarianism, fascism, you know, they evoke a different world. I think we actually need a new term for what's going on in China. One term that I find somewhat compelling is techno-autocracy, because not only do we have an autocracy, but it's hooked up to some to a technological uh, level of sophistication. Right. We did a show with uh, Lisa Lin of the Wall Street Journal. She has a yes. new book out, Surveillance State. I'm sure you've read a lot of these kinds of books. We've done a number of shows on that. Well, Josh Chin, who wrote it with her, is a student of mine. Uh, and I did an event with him too. Yeah, so there you read that and you, you, you kind of do get a sense that of how important control is. But so that suffocates then a whole other layer, uh, a sort of multitude of human impulses that make throughout history have made life worthwhile. And you have to ask yourself, can a revolution which does amputate those other things like family. You know, the, the Mao Zedong had a massive attack against the clan and the family because he said it was futile. They were loyalty to each other. They were loyalty to a, a unit that, that might defy the unity of the revolutionary discussion. So this was very, very, um, very complicated stuff. Two extremely different ways of imagining human beings could be organized and should live. And I, I, I mean, listen, I was all for engagement and I was even curious about Mao, whether he was succeeding. But I, I have to say in my dotage, I have come to, to really look with great alarm about what is happening in China. Because I think- In, in a sense, uh, Orwell, uh, that was a Freudian error, calling you Orwell, Orville. Uh, I'm sure, has anyone well, ever just called you Orwell them, before? Forgiven. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, so it's, there are worse things to call you. Um, 
in a sense, your decision to, to write this novel then is sort of a, an embrace both of form and, and function. The, the, the book is about a marriage um, and the sadness and promise of a marriage and of human relations. Um, in a way, perhaps it's a, a book about your own marriage. I know your, your wife died before the book came out. How personal is this book? Well, I think it was very personal in, in, in certain sort of indirect ways. Uh, I mean, my wife was an amazing woman who grew up uh, in Beijing and um, she grew up very poor, but was absolutely brilliant. And it was through her when I married her, I'd already been reporting on China for a did long time. Did you meet in China? Where did you meet? Well, originally I did, and then I met, met her uh, here uh, at Berkeley in mid-1980s, and we were married for over 30 years. But I felt that when I got together with her, I it was as if I had had somebody put some X-ray vision goggles on me, because I could begin to see some of the answers to the questions which we've been discussing here on your program. You know, how human beings can get along. What do they do when they can't, uh, they can't worship their, their, their God? They can't listen to music. They can't read literature. They can't write poetry. They can't paint pictures, paint, uh, you know. Um, you know, can one just live on a revolution? And I think emphatically my conclusion is the answer is no. It's an incredibly impoverished life. And human beings, at least in the modern era, this may not have always been true, really do have come to, to, to need a certain quotient of independence and freedom to be fully fledged human beings and have meaningful lives. And I think this is what Xi Jinping does not understand and feels incredibly threatened by. And that's the reason why everybody who speaks out in any way gets his knees chopped off. And I think that's not a sustainable system, even though China has accomplished so much. And my hat is off to the tenacity, the hard work, the brilliance, the innovation, all of these things, which I've now lived through in China. I was in China when it had nothing, you know, it had no, no high speed rail, no airports, nothing. When I landed at the airport in Beijing in 1975 and the plane's engines got turned off, you could hear crickets chirping. And look, look what it's accomplished, immense co accomplishment. And I think that we are looking at one of the great tragedies of world history, that Xi Jinping may be putting that great success story in jeopardy. Are we going to get a memoir out of you, a more formal memoir, Orville? Well, I'm always writing memoirs uh, or, 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 or memos, not memoirs. I don't know. Listen, um, I, I'm not you're not tempted to... to tell your story. It's an. I mean, you're telling it in a way in the novel, and you do it, of course, in everything you write. But I'm, I'm not... a lot of people have much less interesting lives who have written <laughs> rather boring memoirs. I think we, we could little... do with one from you. I'm also curious. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Moises Naim. Uh, he, he wrote a book called The End of Power and then The Revenge of Power. He's an old friend of mine. He's been on the show several times. I wonder whether it's not just the Chinese who are embracing the idea of power. Um, it's certainly something that we see. You mentioned you went to China with Trump. This embrace of power seems to be something that's spread to Trump, perhaps, Orban, Erdogan, yeah. 
Putin. Are you concerned with that? It's not just a Chinese problem, is it? Very much concerned with it. The, the, the thing that is worth noting, however, though, is Putin is presiding over something of a train wreck of a country. Uh, and Erdogan is, uh, you know, doesn't ha he has Turkey, which is of consequence, but not a great power. You have Orban. Or Modi in India also. Modi is, is, but he's sort of in the borderline. But what she has that none of the others have is the largest population in the world, an immensely successful economy and a tremendously um, evolved sort of technological base. So he, he actually is a, an authoritarian country with the wherewithal to inflict some damage on others to it, Taiwan maybe, or Japan or the, all of Asia. One has to only imagine if this second shoe drops after Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, namely Xi's invasion of Taiwan or some version of that, um, well, we will in effect be in another world war. Well, let's end on that. Um, uh, Isaac Fish talked about that. He thinks a war is inevitable. That's very chilling. Um, today, uh, Kamala Harris, the American vice president, made a fairly aggressive speech in the Philippines denouncing China. I'm sure you get lots of calls from Biden and Harris's people asking them what you think. What, what should be Western policy on China? What makes sense to avoid war without appeasing Xi? I think that we have to always, and I think Biden is doing this, uh, keep the door open. If America is going to be a real leader, we have to try to lead. If I was Biden, I would put together three or four people, not in the government, maybe they previously in the government or, or academics or think tankers, I would say to Xi, I want to send them to Singapore, Switzerland, someplace. You send a team there. Let's put them in the room for a week. Let's see if they can come up with, you know, one or two or three scenarios for how to do this differently. And then let's see if there's any off ramp that we can find. Um, I, I don't know if they would succeed, but I think we should do everything we possibly can to keep diplomacy alive and to find uh, compromises. But my reading of Xi, I have to say, is that he is so afraid of appearing weak that he has a difficult time making concessions or giving a little to get a little. And this is the heart of Wolf Warrior diplomacy. So I don't know if it'll work. I hope it will. Maybe there are some things that will happen. We'll have an economic downturn and everybody will have a very different view uh, and be more willing to accommodate because the world will be in such disorder. I don't know. Uh, but my hope is that you, the United States will continue to keep the door open, continue to lead, always try to find off ramps and solutions and not simply go for the sort of, uh, you know, step-by-step uh, step up the Cold War to what could end up being like the Ukraine. 